So today, as we continue our study on the Holy Spirit, we are making our transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, where the, the full we experience or find the full revelation of the Spirit's ministry. It's in the Old Testament where we move into the familiar yet confounding territory as it relates to the Holy Spirit and his interaction on God's behalf with God's people. So, as we move into the New Testament, what I want you to do is turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. Of course I do. Yet I know Genesis is not in the Old Testament. Okay, And this story that we're going to look at for a bit today doesn't even mention the Spirit, but it proves critical for the backdrop of everything that we're going to discover about the Spirit in the New Testament. So in Genesis chapter 11, we are going to begin reading in verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used the brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let, let's go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That's why it's called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, let's think a moment. After the flood, there was understandably one language, right? one language, because the people were all descendants of one man, notably Noah. Now, there was, at this time, there was one command that God gave the people for them to follow, one command. And it was revealed as a blessing from God. And so, by the way, just as an aside, all commands are blessings, it is a blessing of God's grace that he reveals wisdom and insight to guide us into the right way of living. Okay, they're life hacks. His wisdom gives us grace, understanding for how to navigate the world we live in. Look at Genesis 9-1. Here's the command he gave them. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, it was a blessing, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Be fruitful. Same kind of thing he said to Adam and Eve, if you remember. Be fruitful, increase in number, and the command was to fill the earth. It was to spread out and repopulate the earth, which had just been decimated by the flood of his wrath. 
What, what do we learn here? God had a big picture vision where he saw a time when the earth was full of people that were in relationship with him. That's why he told them to spread out. But what we find in Genesis chapter 11 is that as they were following God's instruction, they were actually spreading out, moving east, just what he told them to do. They came across a fantastic spot for settling. It's a perfect place. It was on the plain of Shinar. And there was more than enough resources and more than enough room for all of them to settle comfortably in that plain. Now, as is commonly the problem with disobedience, the people didn't look beyond their own immediate needs and trust God's vision for their future. They didn't trust God's wisdom. And so they reasoned, well, God told us to spread out, but maybe what he meant was that if as we go, we find a place that's perfect for us, then we can just settle right there. And so when they got to the plain of Shinar, there was more than enough room for all of them. They figured they knew their needs better than God did because he was separate and so wanting to call their own shots, wanting to be their own bosses, they dug in and settled there on that plain. And these people were not without ambition. As the first group of settlers there in that spot, they wanted to leave a legacy for future generations that would remember them. So they decided not just to build their homes, but to build a city. And by the way, these cities were not to be populated, so it wasn't a city to live in. It was actually that city would serve as a center of cultural development and of worship. That's what they were building. The plan was to build a tower that would reach to the heavens so they could get to the heavens. That was their plan. Now, there were a couple of red flags to this plan. First... They believed themselves capable of anything. They believed they could do it. They could reach heaven by their own effort. If they put in the work, put their minds to it, planned well enough, then they could actually get to God. That was their conviction. The second red flag is they wanted to make a name for themselves. If they built a tower to the clouds, their names would live on long after they ascended those steps to heaven. In some ways, that was the sin of Adam and Eve all over again. In, they, they wanted to be like God. They wanted to be on the same level with God. And so in their foolish pride, they created their own path to connect with their creator. They could get there. But in verse 5, God, with comedic irony, I think, exposes their folly. Did you pick up on it? The people are standing at the base of this tower they have created. It's a ziggurat. It's an engineering marvel. And at that time, on the face of the earth, it was the largest man-made object. So these people are just swelling with pride and God puts them in their place. The text says, remember they're trying to go up to get to God, the text says God 
came down to see their city. In stepping down to see what all the fuss was about, God right-sized those silly people, helping them, I think, understand that we can't work our way to him. Now, when God stepped out of heaven, what did he observe? The tower, of course, he saw the city they were building and the tower, but more importantly, he saw the people and he saw a problem. They were all speaking the same language. And he noted that in their unity, they could do anything they put their minds to. God noted that in their unity, they could do anything. Could they really do anything? Obviously, he doesn't mean they could do anything. Clearly, they couldn't build a tower to get to heaven. That wasn't possible. So what did he see? What did he mean? What he meant was, speaking the same language, there was no evil they couldn't dream up or pursue. If they all got on the same page about the evil they intended to do, there would be trouble. Their unified word, speaking the same language, did put them on the same sheet of music and gave expression to their corrupted hearts. Together, they decided they knew better than God did. They decided to disobey God and settle in that plane despite what he told Noah to do. Together, they decided to build a center of worship, not to express their praise to God, but why? They were making a name for themselves. They wanted to get to heaven and ensure that the generations that would follow would express their praise. Okay, it wasn't about praising God. It was about the generations to follow praising them. So God, knowing and understanding the power of unity, it's a real thing. Knowing and understanding the power of unity decided to separate them. And the end result was that when he came down from heaven, he confused their language, gave them exactly what they hoped to avoid. He scattered them across the earth. In their pride, they decided to ignore God and his instructions, but the sovereign God accomplished his purposes anyway. Anyway. God did what God had decided to do. Now, two questions that I want us to think about for a moment. Is unity bad? God stepped out of heaven, he saw a problem. They were unified in their language. Second, is the desire to get to God bad? That's what they were doing, right? They were, they were figuring out a way to get to God. Now, unity is obviously not bad. As Jesus taught, as the scripture teaches from Genesis to maps, there is power in unity. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. But listen, when that power is exercised in pride, it turns sour. 
There is not a problem with unity. There was a problem with their unity. Second question, is the desire to get to God bad? Is it bad? Obviously not. The scripture tells us that God placed eternity in the heart of every man. The truth is we are all of us yearning to connect with our creator. It is cliche, but people talk about that God-sized hole in your heart. It is real. We are yearning for a relationship with our creator. But again, when that desire is distorted by pride... We actually erase God from the equation of connection and we work to pull it off ourselves. We build our own towers to heaven. We make our own path to heaven. And what God is saying in this passage of Scripture is that's not just bad, it's not just foolish, it is impossible. We can't get there from here of our own effort. So what did God do? He stepped out of heaven and corrected their foolish thinking. He destroyed their unity by confusing their language and subsequently scattered them throughout all the earth. That's what happened at the Tower of Babel. He put a stop to their foolishness. But didn't they just want what God wants? I mean, doesn't God want a relationship with the people he created? And doesn't God want his people to be united? Over and over again, the scripture tells us to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. They had the right idea, but they had the wrong motivation. The problem at Babel was one of their own choosing. They weren't his people wanting what he wanted. They just wanted what they wanted. Now, when we get to the New Testament, what we discover is that Jesus came to call people to God and unite them. He came to meet our deepest yearning, our deepest needs. And that is exactly what Jesus did in the power of the Spirit. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. We're going to look at a couple of passages from John, and then we are going to turn over to the book of Acts. John chapter 3. In thinking about the story of Babel and God stepping down out of heaven, I want you to listen to these words from Jesus' beloved disciple. Verse 31 in John chapter 3, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent, that's Jesus, speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit 
without limit. God gives him the spirit without limit. Now, John's language here is very, very precise. One more time, just like in Genesis chapter 11, God steps out of heaven. This time, though, it is not to disperse people, but to unify them. Now, those people in Babel were speaking the language of the earth. They were speaking lies. We can do this when, in fact, they could not do that. They could not get to God. But Jesus came to testify to what he had seen and heard in the throne room of heaven. And what John says is some people are just going to reject that message and some people will accept it. So what was the message? He spoke the words of God, not the words of the earth. Jesus came to speak the words of God. And how did he speak them? In the power of the Spirit. Okay, and listen, because Jesus was committed to the mission of truth, the life-changing truth of God's Word, he received the Spirit without limit, and the Spirit empowered him to accomplish his mission, which was to speak truth from above. The words of God that Jesus spoke in the power of the Spirit changed the world because they literally provided a path for us to connect with our Creator. And they fostered unity for those of us who are connected. And do you guys remember what Jesus said the day that he came out to the world as the one God sent? It was right after his temptation that we looked at. He was sent into the wilderness by the Spirit. He overcame the temptations of the devil. And then the Scripture says that he went to the synagogue in Nazareth. It was the church he grew up in. It actually says, as was his habit. So if you ever want to know if we're supposed to go to church and you think we're supposed to do what Jesus did, then just know that Jesus went to church as a habit. So just in case you hear somebody say, well, you don't have to, okay. He did. He's in the church that he grew up in. And the way it worked in their worship experience was that someone would get the word of God, a scroll, and they would read from it. They would stand up and read the word of God. So Jesus stands up to read the scripture. He unrolls the scroll of Isaiah, and this is what he read. This is in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. I want you to note exactly what he said he was here to do. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to do what? Proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. Then, when he finished reading that passage of Scripture, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. In that moment, everybody knew, because the Spirit of the Lord was on him, that something was up. Their eyes were fastened on him. And he said, Today, this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, why was the Spirit of the Lord on Jesus? It was for the purpose of proclamation. 
He came to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind. He came to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. The Spirit empowered Jesus to tell the truth of what he had seen and heard in the throne room of heaven, which meant that he was proclaiming the unifying words of God. He did that because the Spirit, effectively, because the Spirit was at work in him. Now, the night before he died on the cross, which was the final step, him finishing the job, that God sent him to do. It it was the ultimate proclamation of God's love and grace. He, He had a meeting with his guys in an upper room and he told the disciples that he had to leave because the Holy Spirit needed to come down on them. Why? To enable them to do exactly what he had been doing. Their job was his job. One message, proclamation of the freedom we find in Jesus. Look at John chapter 15, verse 26. This is what he told them, among other things. When the advocate comes whom I will send you from the Father. Oh, who is the advocate? Who's he talking about? He's the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father. And what does the spirit of truth do? He testifies about Jesus. He will testify about me. And you, those of you who receive the spirit of truth, also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. What's he saying? Through the power of the Holy Spirit and in unity, they would proclaim the good news truth of God. And in lifting Jesus up, he would draw all men to himself. They are lifting the one up who came down from the Father to make a way to the Father. In doing so, Those who heard the good news and believed would be liberated from the laws of sin and death and ultimately connected to their creator. Now that was the plan. Exactly, that's what God had in mind from the beginning. One message, one unified message about the grace and the glory of God, the path to forgiveness and the means to connection with our Creator. Now, what do you think they thought when Jesus told them about the Advocate and what they were supposed to do? They they couldn't fathom how all this would work. How in the world could 12 guys from one small, essentially from one small town in Israel proclaim the truth of God, testify about Jesus to the whole world. They were limited, not just in their education, not just in their experience, because most of them were just blue-collar guys. They were limited in their language. They only spoke the language of their people. 
And there were lots of people around the world with lots of different languages. So how could they do it? Jesus said he was going to send the advocate, the spirit of truth. That gives us an idea. So what happened? After that night, Jesus was tried, unjustly convicted, crucified. Three days later, he was raised from the dead. After his resurrection, he spent about 40 days here on earth. He met with people. He met with his disciples. He encouraged them to do exactly what he had trained them to do. And in that last meeting, Jesus' last words to his disciples before he ascended to heaven, his last word was to reveal God's plan for sharing the world-unifying truth of the gospel. This is what he said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. How will we do this? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem where you speak the language, and in all Judea and Samaria where you speak the language, and to the ends of the earth where you don't. What? How's that going to work? People are at the ends of the earth because God sent them there at Babel. He needed to spread them out. And they were speaking different languages just as God prescribed at Babel. They were separated. And the fact is that one day in time, God did exactly what Jesus said he would do. He dispatched the Holy Spirit from heaven, who did exactly what Jesus said he would do. He gave them power to be his witnesses where they were, to their neighbors, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. It happened at Pentecost. Look at Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. You would think I would know where it was. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. They were unified by the horror of his death, mystified by the impossibility of their assignment. They were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that came as one and separated and came to rest on each of them. What happened with those tongues of fire? All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them to. 
Why? What was the purpose? Why did they need to speak in other tongues? Because God was about to reverse the curse of Babel. He was going to reverse the curse. With the words of truth, he was going to unite the very people he scattered with one unified message. And that is exactly what happened. Look at verse 5. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, the sound of the rushing wind... A crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Whoa, wait a minute. Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans, aren't they from like right around here? And we know they just speak one language, they're uneducated. How is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does it mean? In the power of the Spirit, Jesus' followers were able to reach those scattered at Babel. They were to introduce them to the glory and the love of God in Jesus. They had one message, many languages, one message. They were united by one Message in the power of the Holy Spirit, enabled by the Holy Spirit to do exactly what they thought they could never do, which was reach the ends of the earth. They spoke the language of those visitors in Jerusalem. And they had one message. They told them about the glorious love of God. They told them They testified about their experience with Jesus who graced them with hope, meaning, and purpose. They told them about Jesus who came down from heaven not to separate, not to scatter, but to gather. To gather his chicks as a hen gathers theirs. Jesus came to reverse the curse of Babel. He stepped out of heaven to come to them, not for the purpose of correction this time, but precisely for the purpose of connection. Now listen, as we move forward studying about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, understand this is the heart of of the ministry of the Spirit of God. He was stepped out of heaven, deployed from heaven when Jesus ascended for the purpose of revealing truth about Jesus. And his vision is that those of us who know Jesus 
who experience the presence of the Holy Spirit will be on board and do the exact same thing Jesus was doing. Speaking God's truth. Revealing God's love. His plan for the whole world. The Spirit's ministry is to unite us There's power in unity. It's to unite us around one story that meets man's deepest need. Remember when we ask, is it wrong for us to long for a connection with God? Absolutely not. God created us yearning for that connection. And now, Jesus has made the path for us to connect. For us to connect with our Creator. But He's not here to tell people about it. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in the throne room of grace. And He said, You know what? That's your job. He uses jars of clay fallen, finite, frail people just like me and you to tell that one story. The story of the good news that God sent Jesus out of eternity into time. He stepped down to pull us up. To forgive us of our sins cleanse us from all unrighteousness and grace us with the gift of eternal life. The Spirit unifies, informs, works through us. He enables us to transcend every division and lead people to faith in Jesus. That's the ministry. The truth is, if there has come a point in time in your life where you have come to faith in Jesus, that's because someone in the power of the Spirit pointed out the truth of his story, testified, and through the gracious leading of the Holy Spirit, you trusted Jesus. You believed the story. That he came to die for you, was raised from the dead so you can have life. That happens because of the ministry of the Spirit. And because those who know Jesus testify to the truth of Jesus in the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for Jesus. Who sacrificed himself. So that our deepest need, our need for connection with you could be met. We're thankful, Lord, for the third person of the Trinity who's 
job it was when Jesus returned to heaven was to descend to earth, to not only draw us to that truth, but to convince us of the truth of Jesus and enable us to let our light shine, to point others to that truth. Thank you for the privilege of a testimony. Thank you for the transition from death to life. Help us to be good stewards of your world-changing, unifying story. If you're here today and or you're with us online and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is the story. Jesus fully man, fully God, steps out of eternity, comes down to rescue those of us, all of us, who are corrupted by sin. He took our punishment dying on the cross, was buried, took on death, and won the victory as he was raised in the power of the Spirit. Faith in that story brings us to life, unites us as children of God, and graces us with a story to tell. If you haven't trusted Jesus, that's the invitation to believe that story, God's truth. And if the Holy Spirit is stirring and drawing you to faith, do not resist Him. Open your heart. Declare your faith in Jesus for life. And if that's your story, submit to the will of the Father. Experience the power of the Spirit and let it be your testimony. Father, thank you for the truth of your word and the opportunity to live it. May, be, may we be united under the banner of your victory. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.